On today's episode of Scale Up Marketing, I'm joined by Rick Clow, a longtime startup entrepreneur, former operating partner at GV, and a product manager at Google, where he worked on Blogger, Profiles, and the YouTube homepage. I had wanted to talk to Rick about his work on the OKR goal-setting framework used at Google, but we ended up talking about his journey from being a lawyer to blogger, then to product manager on some of the most widely used products in the world. Enjoy. Hey, Rick, welcome. So good to be here. So you uh, presented some of your thoughts on OKRs, which we'll talk about a little bit later to, to recorded future a couple of weeks ago. And then you graciously accepted my invite to be on this podcast. So first, thank you for that. My pleasure. But as a part of my podcast process, I do deep, deep research on my guests. And the first thing that blew me away in doing my deep, deep, deep research was that you and I kind of sort of worked for the same company way back in the day, a company called iManage. You know, it, it doesn't come up all that much these days, uh, given where my career went afterwards, but that is an amazing small world connection. Yeah. I mean, and iManage was really the dominant platform for law firm content management. Turns out lawyers produce a lot of documents. Yeah. Who knew? And time is money. You And you were a lawyer, right? You graduated with a, a law degree, right? I sure did. So iManage was maybe, it was not SaaS, obviously. It was classic desktop software but a really great example of a vertical application, like that product was so instrumental to lawyers' day-to-day operations. Like, and it's such a, it's a pretty niche product, but was incredibly successful. So I assume that, you know, being a lawyer, you might've played a little bit of role in the marketing of iManage. Is that a... I did. I mean, I, when I first joined, I actually joined in the marketing org. Um, and the expectation was that I brought whatever credibility having the, the JD letters after my name <laughs> might bring, but also a fair bit of technical understanding. I mean, what, what was so unusual, really unheard of at the time for what was desktop software was that it was this three-tier solution that meant that if the server went down, which in those days, the server always went down, um, before I manage, it would take the desktop with it. Oh, that's right. Yes. And so you had lawyers who'd be drafting contracts or reviewing edits. And if you know, PC Docs was the, the the sort of the heavyweight at the time, um, when that server went down, they they were dead in the water. They couldn't work. And if you can't work, you're not billing time. If you're not billing time, you're not making any money. And the 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 opportunity for an elegant bit of technology to come in and say, look, if if the server does go down, because of course it will, um, you can still work. Yeah. And then when it comes back up, we can sync the whatever changes have happened on your end and we'll resolve any discrepancies. Um, I mean, it was like we were selling magic to some of the large law firms who were certain that this was just a, a fact of life at the time. Yeah, and a complete tangent, we will not go down. But syncing was huge. That's why Lotus Notes was so good. Like people underappreciate how good Lotus Notes was way before in the early, early days of network computing. Like the fact that Lotus Notes could figure out how to sync and replicate databases in 1997 or six or whatever was spectacular. And iManage sort of did that for lawyers, right? Absolutely. It. I joined in the summer, I think, of 99. And... It's hard to understand now, 20 plus years later, but the internet still felt like a bit of a distraction 
right? The majority yeah. of the time spent on computers. Um, I had come from an environment where as a law student, I clerked at a law firm in the, uh, would have been the summer of 95. I was the only non-secretary at the law firm that had a computer. Wow. And that was not unusual at the time. Yeah. Of course, today, everyone's got an iPad and a phone and a laptop. Um, so when you think about in the late 90s, this work that was being done on computers that were relatively new to the, the lawyer's desk, because in the past they'd be dictating to their secretary who would then be transcribing and then they'd edit those. Um, it was such a need to, to reconcile those differences. And these were institutions that didn't always have the best in class network infrastructure. Um, it was not unusual for somebody in a coat closet to unplug something they didn't know what it was. <laughs> and suddenly the entire network had gone down. So um, that ability to be resilient when things were uh, unexpected was pretty critical. Yeah. So I worked at a company called Interove and we acquired iManage, I think after you left. And I ended up working for the co-founder of iManage, Rafiq, who I learned a tremendous amount about. And also Rafiq bought me my first iPhone. I did something, I guess, good and he bought me an iPhone. So I will never, ever, ever forget you, Rafiq. Thank you for uh, for that. The most interesting part about iManage, I think, is so I so Interoven acquired iManage, Autonomy, the notorious Autonomy acquired Interoven, HP acquires Autonomy, and iManage sort of survived through all of that. OpenText acquired some of the assets from HP. So it goes iManage to Interoven to Autonomy to HP to OpenText. And the founders bought the product back. So they bought the product from HP and iManage is doing better than ever. So it's kind of a weird testament to this This product now here, whatever it is, 20 years later is still dominating the law firm market. That's extraordinary. And also it reflects within that industry, legal specifically. I mean, it's it's an industry built around mitigating risk. Yeah, so once you have something, you know that it works and it solves the problem and it solves it well, it's not broken. So don't fix it. Don't try and give me the next widget that's a little bit incrementally better. It is exactly what the market needed 20 years ago and apparently is what it continues to need today, right? which is just amazing. It is amazing. And you started all of that. They're probably still using some of your positioning now 20, uh, 20 plus years later. So, Oh, I, 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 <laughs> I hope for their case, that's not the, the case. Fair enough. So after I manage, you went to social. So you and I had like a lot of, not, not exact in the same space, but super close to each other. Social text is one that's interesting. So social text, for those who don't know, and then FeedBurner, two like classic Web 2.0. I hate the word Web 2.0, by the way, but I'm going to put them under this bucket just because it's, I think it's, it is what those tools were called back in the day. Social text is one I find super interesting. I'd love to get your take on it. I've always thought wikis as a paradigm were super underrated and like are still relevant today, but they never took off. Like I feel writing is such an underappreciated form of communication. Wikis are a perfect platform for that. Like what was that experience like and what happened? Well, I, it, my first interaction, I went to work for Ross Mayfield at Social Text. Uh, Ross and I met each other through blogging. And, and I had started blogging um, shortly after I left iManage. I had joined a company called Interface Software, was providing CRM software in the legal market. 
And I was a columnist for the American Bar Association's Law Practice Management Magazine. I was past deadline, needed something to write about. <laughs> and on an unrelated project, four separate times had run into John Robb and his blog. Yeah, I kept Googling for something and I kept ending up at John Robb's blog. I had no idea who John was. I had no idea what a blog was. This was, you know, middle of 2001. So I got interested and made that the focus of my column and started a blog so that I could say that I had done it for purposes of this article. And then figured out I loved it. I loved <laughs> writing. I loved nice. joining this, this community that was nascent at the time. And one of the people who was saying some pretty interesting things about knowledge management, about this emerging crop of tools that, as you pointed out, became known as Web 2.0, was a guy named Ross in Palo Alto. Um, I, by this point, was living outside of Chicago. And on occasion, when I would travel through San Francisco, speaking at a conference or meeting with a customer, um, I would meet and have a beer with Ross, or when I was in New York, I would meet and have a beer with some of the people I met who were blogging from New York. Um, when I left Interface, uh, Ross was one of the first people I called because I, I had finally decided, I, I think I might be done with legal technology. I, I think I want to move <laughs> into something a little bit more horizontal and quickly figured out that you know Ross had a need and this was an opportunity to be part of the company. Um, Answering your question, why didn't wikis really take off? I, I don't know. I, I kind of share your sense that as a, as a medium for enabling the co-creation of information, a wiki, there's no better tool. No better. Um, but I do think that much like I would see later when I ended up at Google running Blogger, there is an absolute distinction between people who see themselves as content creators and people who see themselves as content consumers. And the, that distinction, I think there's probably something to why, at least in a, in a corporate setting, there are people who feel like committing to content on a page as opposed to consuming it yeah. is potentially a step too far. It's, you know, there's a few companies. HubSpot is maybe the best example of a company that even today, like their entire world is based on wikis. They've been creating and updating corporate wikis since they were founded in what, 2007 or so. And it becomes like this, the great thing about it is if you adopt it, it becomes this great living record of things. And, you know, today Slack didn't, you know, entirely solve the problem. Email clearly hasn't entirely solved the problem, but do wikis right and hyperlink things and make them editable in real time. It's a really elegant solution to the problem of keeping people on the same page. I just, I, I'm like you, I wish more people would blend that, would blur that line. I think more people should be content creators, not just consumers. And wikis are so perfect for that. Yeah, it, it does require a, a, a level of abstraction for people who grew up with computers thinking in terms of files and folders the wiki requires a, a, a whole different way of thinking about where the information lives, how one page relates to another. Um, I, it, it spoke to me. Once I started using it, I couldn't imagine not using it. Yeah. I think for the same reasons that today I, I live in Airtable 
as a as a as a new document type that is independent from documents and spreadsheets. It it is its own thing, um, but I think it requires an investment of time and understanding that there are folks who are like, look, I just I have work to do. I just want to get the work done. Yeah, except getting the work done and then communicating the work is where the the challenge happens, and that's where Wikis are great. And then, so from social text, you went to FeedBurner, right? Another, like, and FeedBurner, describe what FeedBurner did, because that FeedBurner is one that I, I spent a lot of time in actually back in the day. Well, it, it's, it, it's another uh, employment opportunity that arose out of blogging. Yeah. Um, so I was a couple of years into maintaining my own blog. I had started a, a political blog as well as I got excited about the Dean campaign in 0203 and realized that there was an increasing amount of consumption readership of my blog that was happening in feed readers, right? RSS as a, as a file format, as a syndication format was one way for the blog to get delivered. If people came to the blog's webpage, the URL on the web, I could, I could see that. I could see how many people were reading pages on my site. But if they were reading an RSS, that was completely opaque. There was no way to know how large, if at all, the audience was on the other side of that file. And out of curiosity, I started trying to figure out if that was an answerable question. Well, hmm. it turns out not only was it answered, but the team building the answer or the, the tool that would answer that question was in my backyard in Chicago. Wow. And FeedBurner as a product existed to tell you how large your audience was with an RSS feed, how many people were reading it, how many people were subscribed to that file. Uh, and for a podcast, which is just a RSS file that includes pointers to MP3 files, uh, how many people were actually listening to the podcast, yeah. which in the very earliest days hard to believe this was 15 years ago, but in the earliest days of podcasting, we had no way of quantifying that audience. And any, any medium that seeks to be commercial, you need to know those numbers. So yeah. FeedBurner became the platform for knowing what that audience, how big it was, uh, and how they were engaging with that content. See, I'm an open source, open standards kind of guy. And I feel like the world needs RSS again. Like I, I'm sort of tired of people telling me how to consume my content. The thing about RSS I loved was I made that choice. You know, I could determine how I wanted that content given to me, not somebody, not a publisher, quote unquote. But, you know, I don't know if RSS is ever coming back again, but those were glorious days. It really was. I think if you look back at, you know, there were standalone applications like NewsGator was one of the ones on, on Windows. Um, but Google Reader, of course, famously became this adored product for a small but very passionate user base that even to this day, if you start mentioning Google Reader, the first words that somebody will reply, will reply to you with are too soon. Like it still hurts that that product um, doesn't exist. I just anymore. got the chills when you said, I literally just got the chills when you said Google Reader. Of course, you went to Google any truth of the rumor that you killed Google Reader? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I had nothing to do uh, with with that unfortunate uh, timely demise. 
It was I did kill FTP on Blogger. That that one I will own. I but that's read about that. We'll get yeah. to that. We'll get to that in a little bit. But you know, Google Reader is a perfect example for product that look. The writing was on the wall, with, and it was a very niche but engaged audience. But the the funny thing is, usually when that happens, somebody it gives somebody else a chance to step in and take that audience. But no one did. No one made a better Google Reader. Whatever it is, twelve years now later. Yeah, and you look at none of the building blocks have gone away, right? RSS still exists. It's still possible to pull an RSS feed and check for the diff and bring in whatever the new items are. Um, feed burner hasn't really changed from no. the day it got acquired, but the product still exists. Yeah, yeah. still works. Um, still a bunch of podcasters who use it because it's one of the few ways. Now, I imagine for those who are using um, either tools like Anchor or other tools to distribute their podcast. There are other ways of capturing audience data, but um, it does feel like there remains an enormous opportunity uh, to lean into this as we're starting to recognize that some of the social platforms uh, may not have our best interests at heart um, and are not necessarily the best consumption experiences yeah. for, for really identifying the sources of news you want. Yeah. So a couple of things there. My favorite, by the way, speaking of sort of technology history, friend feed was my favorite way ever of consuming content. And obviously Brett Taylor and the whole team went on to build Facebook and then over to Salesforce and did amazing stuff. But friend feed would let you like the way that friend feed would let me build my stream and people could then subscribe to my sheet. My stream was amazing. Like I love friend feed. That was the only thing that fought Google reader from my heart. Uh, boy, I, I can imagine the fan club I could introduce you into of some of my close friends who were huge friend feed, oh. uh, acolytes, um, and, and passionate users before the, the Facebook acquisition. Um, yeah, you know, you look back at, at that period of time, really 2004 or five till about 2008 was just this unbelievably fertile time where if you were invested in curating your audience and curating the audiences you wanted to be a part of, um, I, I, Twitter is a little bit of that for me today. Yeah. But I think only because I've been on Twitter from nearly day one, that there are relationships I've formed with people who, who are the people I engage with. Um, I think for a lot of people, Twitter is much more unidirectional. It's very much a, I'm, I, I use it as the equivalent of a feed reader, um, but which it is absolutely not anything yeah. like what the friend feed experience yeah. was or, or, or what the Google reader experience was. And Google reader itself was pretty social. If you had a, a community of people whose shared items you were following, um, I have friends to this day who the, their only point in common is me through Google Reader. They've never met. Wow. But still know of each other because the the activity feed and the shared items on Google Reader was where they met. That's really crazy. I you know, I think the lesson in this for me is a lot of there's so much opportunity. You you go back to the history, we talked about Lotus Notes, you know, earlier today. Like there's so much technology that's happened over the years that that we could learn from and that we think is innovative. And you really look at like what Lotus Notes did back in 87 was crazy when you really take a step back. 
And I think we'll look at some of what, what came and went in this sort of dawn of Web 2.0 and say, these are things we could learn from. And somebody somebody could take on the current state of social platforms with a little bit of, you know, a little bit of good product management, I guess. Yeah, so much of this comes down to timing. Yeah. And and if there was naivete built into some of these products early on, certainly that got exploited in years to come, it was never worrying about the pos- possible negative impact yeah. or ways in which these tools could get weaponized um, that allowed us to just lean into the serendipity without putting any guardrails in to prevent what could have come. I think it would have been extraordinarily difficult Agreed. in 2005, 2006, 2007 to argue that the right product decision for YouTube was to limit user engagement because at some point nation states might try and weaponize that information. That I mean, you would have been laughed out of that room. Laughed out of it. The same with Twitter. You would have been Twitter is where you shared what you had for breakfast. Mm-hmm. No doubt. It is fascinating. So you ended up joining Google through FeedBurner, right? So Google buys, buys FeedBurner. And I want to talk a little bit about that. So you worked on a bunch of products at Google that I think you know most people had an experience with. You worked on Google Plus a bit, this thing called YouTube. You worked on Blogger. Um, what did you start off at? So we come in through FeedBurner. Where, where did you go first? Well, it's 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 funny. Um, I started in business development. Yep. Um, Google, at least at the time, was pretty unusual among tech acquirers for interviewing every employee yeah. at the acquired company before the acquisition closed. Wow. Because this was still at a time, company was about 10, 12,000 people. Larry and Sergey were still reviewing every employee offer that went out the door. Wow. And they saw acquisitions as a potential vector for people who would not otherwise meet the hiring bar, kind of sneaking in through the side door and then being in the company that much with with the risk of them sort of polluting the talent pool that existed inside the company. So, so Google interviews everyone in the company. Wow. Which, you know, we were maybe 25, 30 people at the time. And after the first round of interviews, they and I both agreed, well, that did not go well. Like, I... I liked the people I talked to, but what they talked about doing in their day-to-day job didn't sound like anything that was interesting to me. And their feedback to the corp dev team was, boy, he seems like a good guy, but he's not right for this team. Hmm. So I ended up having an interview with a whole different set of folks. And the, the terms of the deal were quite clear. Our four founders, Dick Costello, Steve Olikowski, Eric Lunt, Matt Schaub, were all Chicago guys. And they had made very clear to Google that you know, we are we are open to the possibility of an acquisition as long as everyone stays in Chicago. Wow. So Google said, all right, we that, that works. We're about to open a large engineering office. We'll just put you there. And a week before the deal closed is when I'm having my second round of interviews, panicking, <laughs> that perhaps I'm not going to get a job. 
that this will be a great outcome. I was one of the first non-founder employees at FeedBurner, and I'm still going to find that I somehow didn't meet the Google, Google hiring bar. And in the middle of one of those interviews, my future boss tells me, well, you're, you're coming to Mountain View. And I said, oh, I imagine I'll be in Mountain View a lot. He says, no, you're, you're coming to Mountain View. This is where our team is and we need you here. So I'm like, did, did he just tell me I have a job? I think, <laughs> I, I, I think he told me I just have a job, which is great. Um, so sure, okay. Um, and the postscript there is that my grandfather had just passed away the day before this. So I had to sh change my schedule to fly to Florida to his memorial service. And my wife had flown with our three very young children to Florida the day I was interviewing. And, and then I'm spending the entire day Friday flying to Florida from San Francisco. I don't see my wife or have a chance to talk to her until we're at the memorial service where I have to eulogize my grandfather. And then she has to drive one of the family to the airport. So we don't actually get to talk until 72 hours after I've had my interview where I have to break the news to her in front of my entire family at this celebratory dinner as we remember my grandfather's life that we're about to move the family to California. Wow. <laughs> So I end up in business development, uh, ended up on a, a, a team called Strategic Partner Development Management, yep. which is just a lot of words that mean you, our job in, in that org was to acquire the content that Google couldn't index on its own. Interesting. Hmm. Is there a lot of content? I guess there probably was. I mean, I'm well, you, yeah, you think about everything from map tiles yeah, and satellite yeah, imagery yeah, yeah, to yeah. books to feeds of products for sale and on and on and on. If it was proprietary content for which there needed to be at least a contract in place, if not some compensation for access to that content, um, it, was, it was our team's job to negotiate access to that content, determine what if any compensation there would be. And then there was a whole other part of that team whose responsibility was to manage all of those partners around the world yeah. who are who are providing, feeding this content into one or more of the Google products nice. uh, that were in, ingesting it. Yeah. And that was, and how did you transition to becoming a product manager? Because I have this like, <laughs> first of all, you're, you're, you're not a tech, like you were not, although you're clearly a nerd, like I am, you know, you have a JD, your undergrad was liberal arts, something, yeah. right? How do you, I've always figured product managers are at Google are PhD, CS, like how did that happen? Uh, I've, I've always referred to this as the immaculate promotion. <laughs> uh, we'll start there. Um, you're not far off, right? The, the bias certainly back when I joined Google in 2007, uh, by this point, you know, I'd been at Google about a year in 2008. The bias was all but written in stone. If you don't have a computer science degree, you cannot be a product manager. There was, there was a little known separate category called a business product manager, ah. which allowed for non-CS majors who were seen more as almost an outward facing 
kind of like a GM yep. to the market, um, but weren't expected to be a PM in, in the traditional sense, at least how Google thought of it. I knew from within a week of joining Google that the absolute ideal job at Google was to be a product manager. Nice. And about a week later, I knew, and I would never be a product <laughs> manager at Google because no matter how you add up international affairs and French plus a law degree, they do not, you don't rearrange those letters to spell computer science. No. And you were going to go back to school and, and spend four years learning how to write, you know, Java. Right. I, I, so I, I, I sort of took both of those things as, as gospel. I just knew I would be on the fringe. I would get to work with some product managers I admired and I would be close to the center of gravity on campus, but that was never going to be a path that would be open to me. So Google famously has this concept of 20% time, which yeah. you know now 20 plus years into its, its existence, uh, some people raise an eyebrow and suggest it's, it's not as real these days. But back then uh, I took liberal advantage of 20% time. And, and one of my first projects was when I discovered that Google was sponsoring both the Democratic Convention in Denver in 2008 and the Republican Convention in St. Paul, I raised a hand and was like, well, I, I worked on the Obama Senate campaign back in 04. Um, I know a lot of his tech team as he's now the, the yeah. nominee for the Democratic Party. Uh, I don't know if y'all need help, but I'm here. And, and, and that's how I backed into being responsible for managing Google's partnership in Denver for the Democratic Convention. Wow. So it was a blast. It was extraordinary. I got to spend a week in Denver um, attending a number of convention events, but also being responsible for a lot of Google's product presence in Denver. And one of the women who was part of the Google team in Denver was a woman named uh, Katie Stanton. And Katie and I hit it off. She's, you know, we're the same age. We each have three kids, all of whom are roughly the same age. We shared a lot of political interest. And so as we're in Denver with a bunch of, you know, early 20-somethings, uh, finding ourselves sort of the, the folks with experience on the ground and just swapping notes. She was a PM at Google. I was super yeah. interested in how she did that. She had previously been at Yahoo. And so she becomes one of my very close friends at Google, somebody I looked up to, admired. And about three months later, I get an IM on a weekday night. And she says, I think you need to be the PM on Blogger. And I said, well, you know, from your lips to God's ears, but I don't think that's how that works. <laughs> there probably and wasn't a better job for you given, you know, given, it, you know, you were a blogger prior to blogger. It, exactly right. So I said, well, what, why are you, why are you suggesting that? I, I would love to do that, but I don't think that's in the cards. She goes, well, I was just talking to Joe Krause. Joe is the director in the apps, Google apps world. One of his products is blogger. And he was just telling me, he needs somebody with business sense who understands the blogging world. Uh, and I told him, you're the guy that he should talk to. So, okay. I, like, yeah, sign me up. 
she introduced me to Joe. Joe and I meet. Um, Joe and I hit it off. Joe has to go to Sergey Brin to get an exception made no to way. allow me to be a product manager. Wow. And I would love to tell you it's because Sergey was so blown away by my product acumen. But I think the reality is that Blogger was not a strategically vital product to Google at the time. And the expectation was, yeah, what's the worst that could happen? I, we find another product manager to, to work well, on Blogger. You actually blogged. Like, I, I would assume that your resume was, look, I'm one of the few people that actually has done this for some period of time. I, I came at it from two sides, right? On the one hand, it's like, I know this world. I've been blogging at this point for eight years. I, wow. I ran a campaign blog for a presidential campaign. I I worked in the industry on FeedBurner, where I, I worked with all of the different players in the blogging ecosystem. So I know that world cold. On the other hand, I, I went to every product manager I had crossed paths with at Google. The more non-traditional the background, the better. Yep. Right, but started with Katie, and then there's a guy named Adam Smith who I'd worked closely with, who who at the time was working on Google Books, and a couple of others, and said, "Listen, I I don't know if there's a process here, but if you could put down a few words on what you think I could or couldn't bring to the job, and then send that to Sergey, like that'll help fill in the gaps." So I think it de-risked it enough. That and Joe is a pretty compelling individual. I don't know if you ever crossed paths with Joe, but no, I know of him. Yeah, a, kind of a, a legend in Silicon Valley in his yeah. own right. He was the founder of Excite when he was still a, an undergrad at Stanford. Had sold Jotspot to Google uh, the year before Feedburner sold to yeah. Google. Jotspot itself, a social text competitor. So <laughs> yeah. we, there were all these paths that seemed to lead to this moment, and. Joe gets Sergey to to make the exception. And wow. and and that's how I I moved into the product org uh out of what had been more of a BD or sales role uh and where I would be at Google for the next 3 almost 4 years. Wow. And what were you just curious what were you blogging on prior to using Blogger for you know back at the Obama campaign what were you actually blogging on? So I, my very first blog, I started on Blogger. Yep. Um, I got excited by uh, John Robb, was one of the people I ended up talking to for that magazine column. He was at the time running uh, Radio Userland. Yep. Remember Dave yeah, yeah. Weiner's uh, yeah. uh, company product from back in the day. And Inventor was, of RSS, Dave Weiner, right? It, that's one and the same. There you go. I, I, I love learning new tools. And this was an excuse to poke at a at a a, a new product idea, a new product category. That the whole notion of outlining as an organizing tool was interesting to me. So I used Radio Userland for a while. Then Movable Type came along. Of course, played with that. Ran my personal blog on Movable Type for a while. Um, we had uh, I had moved. One of the blogs I was responsible for, I think it might have been a campaign blog, uh, onto WordPress, and and then moved my own blog to WordPress. Um, and ahead of taking the blogger job, I remember going through the effort of migrating 
back to where I started. Hmm. So taking what had at that point was eight, almost nine years of content and exporting out of WordPress into Blogger, which was not a popular direction to go. It was almost always the other way. Uh, and having a bunch of friends reach out and effectively asking some version of everything all right? Like, why Why would you do that? And then a month later got to announce like, well, because I'm, I'm now responsible for some portion of the product uh, at, at Blogger. And, and, and now this is as good an excuse as any to, to eat my own dog food. Yeah, I was, so in that same time, I was in the enterprise web content management business, you know, managing big corporate websites. Sure. And I remember the first time I saw WordPress, I'm like, we're in trouble. Like WordPress didn't do any of the things that we did as an enterprise. They didn't do security and permissions and complex sites and navigation, but I'm like, the user experience is so simple. This is going to be a problem. And actually, I went later to work with the founder of Drupal, uh, Dries at Acquia. And it's that era, again, back to, you know, that was WordPress and Drupal just all of a sudden dominated how people publish content, especially WordPress. I mean, WordPress, Matt Mullenweg, you know, his vision is to have 100% of the world's sites run on WordPress. And he's not going to get entirely there because of things like Drupal, but but that's a pretty ambitious vision. And it, to, to Matt's credit, it was the vision 15 years ago, <laughs> and they've just been chipping away ever since. It, it's, it's an extraordinary run. I, what you just described, I mean, it's textbook innovator's dilemma. Innovator's dilemma, clearly. Exactly. It's, 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 it's as if it's a chapter out of Clayton Christensen's book. This is exactly how it happens. You, you solve for the top of the market, and then suddenly watch as the bottom of the market just keeps working its way up the stack. And, and hollows out the value proposition of what the six and seven and eight figure uh, alternatives present. See, yes. And I think that's going to happen right now. If you follow along with Wix and Squarespace and they're going to do to the enterprise side of that business, you know, like they're, what you can do with Squarespace and Wix these days is for $19.99 a month or whatever it is, is absolutely stunning. So I feel like that's, that's happening now on the corporate side of it too. All right. So being a product manager at Google, so I'm a marketer. I run marketing at, at Recorded Future. You were once a marketer back in the day. How did product managers at Google work with marketing? Sometimes they didn't. Okay. Right? I, I, I think one of the interesting things is product at Google is not monolithic. There's, there's a pretty wide spectrum. And, and I should also disclaim for the last nine years, I was at Google Ventures. Yeah. So I left the product org and, yeah. and it's evolved quite a bit since I left. But in my experience, you have some product managers whose real skill is thinking about being a partner with the engineering team on everything from architecture and scale and making hard choices about product design, product execution, et cetera. I came at it from a very different point of view. I particularly, it was helped by the fact that I was working on Blogger, which by its nature was a public product. Yeah. I, I looked at my job as being one of, I needed to be the most visible person at Google with respect to Blogger. I needed to be findable. Huh. Right? So that meant my blog needed to be easy to find and understand who I was and what my responsibility was. It is why I was so active on Twitter early days because 
people who use any blogging platform, forget about blogger for a minute, are used to speaking their opinion out to the world <laughs> and having it be heard and if necessary, responded to. And if I was going to sit behind this veil of, you know, my job is to, is, is to work inside the company on the product itself, I was doing the product and the user base a disservice. And, and look, it, it also bears mentioning, Blogger's founder is Ev Williams. Yeah. If, if, yeah. if ever there was the canonical example of an individual who lived the values of the products that he created, it's Ev. Yeah. And I felt responsibility stepping into that chair to, to, to not try and be Ev, but to honor that notion of users need to know who the people are that are building their products. Um, my, my first meeting, a week after becoming product manager, I went and sat down with Ev at the Twitter offices to say like, let me, let me catch you <laughs> up on what bloggers up to these days, but tell me if there's anything I should know. Yeah. From, from, from the guy that was there on, on day one, I, you know, I'm, I'm all ears. So um, in, in regards to your question, the way I worked with marketing was to try and think about there is a story that Blogger is a part of. And it's the story that every one of the users is writing every day. Are there product decisions we need to be making in service of that story or worse, but equally important, are there product decisions we're making that are absolutely in opposition to that story? Yeah. Right. So I'll give you a, a, a great example. Um, this was less a product decision, but it was absolutely a conversation I had with marketing. We are a platform for communication. I say we. I'm immediately yeah. going back to the days when I was the product manager on Blogger. And, and we had a user who happened to be the president of the Republic of Georgia. Hmm. And when the Russians cut the trunk line into Georgia and there were actual boots on the ground invading Georgia, the president of Georgia's only communication line out to the outside world was a satellite phone that allowed him to blog on Blogger. Wow. I remember taking that pretty seriously as an obligation that we had to make sure that our product owed it to its users to be available. But then when I got an opportunity to write an op-ed for CNN, a friend of mine worked in, in uh, at CNN, actually was a, a feed burner user from back in the day. And he reached out and said, hey, if there's ever anything you wanna talk about, like I can connect you to the folks that run uh, that part of CNN.com. I made it about the importance of the UN Declaration on Human Rights and that freedom of speech was itself a human right of which online communications were an absolutely critical component. So if you had governments that were trying to stifle speech, wherever they might be, that was itself in opposition to the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Mm. And that was not a me going rogue, that was me working with marketing 
to say, what is the, what's the story we're trying to tell, blogger? And of course, the challenge at a company as large as Google is it's a lot of work to ensure that those stories are themselves in concert with each other. Yeah. Because you can imagine, like if, if I'm all but pointing a finger at a nation state, it's one thing to do that as a guy running a tiny little product. It's another thing if it's Google saying that. Uh, but feeling that it was an important part of bloggers' identity, that we had a point of view and that we communicated it. I think there's two things. I mean, first of all, you're doing this as a, again, a product manager, right? So you're taking the approach that a, typically a CEO would take, right? A CEO is, is thinking about, you're not thinking about managing backlog and what's going to be in what sprint and how many engineers are on your project. You're thinking about how we position, you know, you're thinking about the strategic outcomes your product needs to deliver for users. It's just such a different way of thinking about it. Do you think that that's how most product managers should operate? Like, should product managers be worried about marketing in that way? I mean, I have a bias. Uh, I'd like <laughs> to think that that my approach was it, certainly not the only way to go, but I think for that product at that time, it was absolutely the right way to go. Yeah. And, you know, you'll often hear people talk about product managers as the CEO of their product. And I've always found that to be a bit of a misnomer because a lot of product organizations are not set up that way. Yeah. They are set up to be more internally focused yeah. or more, more outcome oriented. We, you know, the job is to ship the next product. The job is to hit some set of metrics. I just didn't know how to do the job <laughs> if I wasn't operating horizontally yeah. across those components. And, you know, I made a joking reference to killing FTP uh, earlier. That was an example of me thinking about it, not from the, what's the next sprint going to be? What's the bug burn down rate? What's the, you know, what, what technical debt have we incurred that we need to pay down? It was me hearing the engineers tell me, this is a drag on everything we do. Yeah if we don't stop supporting this feature that almost no one uses, we cannot deliver on the things that the company expects of us that we think we're capable of doing. And so I had to make the decision, okay, we're gonna kill this thing. I will be the bad guy. I will communicate, not a decision has been made, not use the passive voice, make it unclear exactly where it's coming from or who's responsible for it. I will go on Twitter. I will answer emails. I will be the one in the forums owning the decision, making it clear that I made it and then working to at least earn back some of the trust or, or try and lean into the opportunity to earn back that trust to show the users why we were doing it and why it was critical for the future of the product to do it. Ultimately, candidly and somewhat selfishly, the the reason for doing that is so the engineers would trust me. Because hmm. if 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 I'm supposed to be the product manager and the engineers don't trust me, he yeah. never listens. Yeah. We tell him about why these things are terrible or why we shouldn't do them. No, he he actually heard us and went to bat and took the arrows in the back 
never pointed a finger, never complained, oh, this is something that so-and-so is making me do. Um, that earned a tremendous amount of credibility with an engineering team that needed to believe that I could and would go to bat for them when needed. And how much negative feedback, how many, how many tweets and emails were you applying to? A Hundreds, lot. thousands? Uh, th uh, definitely thousands by the time it was all <laughs> said and done. Um, we had a Hitler video made of us. So, you know, okay. the popular downfall uh, parody videos it was actually extraordinarily well done. Um, very funny. We played it at a team meeting uh, and gave us all a good laugh. Um, it, it was an interesting lesson early in my product time that stuck with me, which is you don't ever choose to do something because it will piss off your users. That's like, you're, you're a sadist if you do that. But if you know enough about your users, you know enough about your product, you can anticipate the things that may in fact provoke sure. that strong reaction. Yeah. And those are some of the best opportunities to earn those users for life. This is what Apple, Apple is masters at this. You know, they released a whole bunch of new hardware today and people are angry because the new MacBook Pro only has four, you know, two Thunderbolt ports, not four like the old one had. But Apple sees that as an opportunity to explain the decision. And, and you know, like, but there is a benefit to doing this. And Apple makes those sort of tough decisions mercilessly every time they release something. It, and it's, it shows both a confidence in the value of what you are presenting um, and, and a, a conviction that what you are doing, you are doing for the right reasons, even if the broader audience may not either appreciate all of those factors. Now, I, I, have, I have been a sometimes grudging admirer of Apple. Um, I am an Android phone user. I am waiting for my new M1 uh, laptop to show up. So I'm pretty excited. It seems like it's going to be a great step up. And I, I think one of the challenges I've always had with them is they don't seem to talk to their users much, right? And this is the other side of the equation that I always took very seriously. So that is an excellent point. And so they, they product marketers at Apple will go out with YouTube journalists and they'll do highly controlled, like you can go watch it on YouTube and all the famous tech reviewers Apple sends out product marketers with very, you know, scripted and even the execs do this, but it's all, it's controlled by the message is tightly controlled. They control who they deliver the message to in the form of these journalists. There are no Apple execs out there doing what you did on social media. And I think you're right. Like that is a, it's something I admire about people who've done what you did. Now, Apple maybe has earned the right to be the one company that can get away with doing it that way. But it is annoying because you know they're you know they know the answers to those tough questions and they just want to pretend like the problem doesn't exist. Well, and and look, it, it, things have worked out really well for Apple. So yes. far be it for me to suggest that the the approach is either wrong or 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 inappropriate. I just know from my point of view, the way I wanted the, the PM I wanted to be, the, the product I wanted to represent was one where the users felt a sense of 
ownership to the end result. Hmm. Wanted them to feel as if they were part of what we were building, not waiting on the sidelines to be handed something. Yeah. And of course, when we decided to kill Blogger's first feature, you had a, a tiny minority of users, but still a very passionate vocal group for whom it felt like we were just taking something away, whether it was because we were being vindictive or we were lazy or we just didn't know how the technology worked. <laughs> that, you know, they could they could fill the, the 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 emptiness if we didn't engage with all the worst possible explanations. Instead, our answer was to say, no, no, we're I'm going to explain to you why we're doing this. We actually, FTP is such a terrible, terrible protocol that if an FTP socket opens and the connection doesn't successfully complete, that socket will stay open and it'll try again. And the number of ISPs that Google data centers brought to their knees because it of say, the, it's a, it's a nice fancy, it's a nice way to DDoS, right? It, absolutely right. And so we had ISPs that would add Google data centers to its block list <laughs> because they had one user who didn't know what was going on and were just FTPing their blog up to the ISP and and bringing their servers to its knees. So long story short, I, I just, I felt that transparent communication with listening was was the only way I knew how to manage through what was a really hard message for this user base to hear. Now it was 50,000 users, but 50,000 out of millions. Yeah. So I needed the 50,000 to know that we weren't just trying to kick them to the curb, but that we were we were emphatic. This was in fact the commitment we were making. This was not an invitation to tell us whether they wanted us to kill FTP or not. <laughs> well, I think time is proven. You were right to kill FTP <laughs> for lots of reasons. So you should you should be very proud of that decision. Look, I'll let you go. But my my takeaway, and, and this has been fantastic. And I, I do these podcasts one to get inspired. I figure if I'm inspired, hopefully others will be inspired as well and to learn things. And what I've learned, and I think is is a takeaway for all of us is marketer, product manager, whatever, being the face of your product and not the CEO per se, because you're not managing the P&L necessarily, although maybe you are, but treating your product with the same level of ownership and pride. In the case of you building a community, like these are things we all, product, man, product marketers, product managers shouldn't be inward facing. I think we should be much more outward facing because that's where the magic happens. And too much, I think we we obsess over the pitch deck, the marketing materials, the things that that don't necessarily directly get in front of customers. I think that's a mistake. Yeah. I, the number of ways in which um, it, it matters, the degree to which you project out into the world, what your values are, what's important to you. Um, I'll tell you about one of my favorite uh, stories back to my time on Blogger. One of the very first decisions I made, I met Ev and I, I had the, the engineering team pull a list of the most active blogs, most read blogs by geography, by subject. And then every night, for a number of weeks, I would send 
a handful of emails to each of the people who were, who were on that list. Just introducing myself, I'm the product manager responsible for Blogger. Here's how to reach me, here's my cell phone, here's my email address. I would love to know what your experience on the product has been. If you got a problem you want fixed, tell me what it is. If there's something you love, tell me that. About three years ago, uh, this is now 10 years after I'd been the product manager on Blogger. I got a LinkedIn request from a guy whose name I didn't recognize. Hmm. And he was a, a product manager at Expedia. He had been a high school student in Richmond, Virginia, <laughs> running a tech blog that had ridiculous engagement. And he got an email from me introducing myself as the product manager and blogger. And as he would later explain, he's like, I'd never heard the words product manager but after five minutes of Googling, realized that's the job I wanted. Yeah. So I went to college to become a product manager because I got an email from you wow. when I was a sophomore in high school. And I, I think back on that and the number of times little gestures can have enormous ripple effects years and years later. We'll never know what all those ripples are. I, this just, for me, that was a wonderful uh, full circle moment Yeah, where, yeah, if I'd been like him, I didn't know what a product manager was pretty much until I got to Google. And then it was like, yeah, I definitely want that and I'll never get it. Um, I, if I had been entirely internally focused, look, he may have found his way to that eventual outcome regardless. Um, but it just felt like that was the right way to be true to both the product and to who we wanted to be as a product team. Yeah, I, I mean, I think opportunities, I'm trying to think in my own life, how could I do that? And I guess, you know, maybe this podcast will help somebody someday want to be a marketer, but man, you've had quite the career. Now I sort of just feel I'm ending this feeling a little bit bummed out and also inspired at the same time. I'm like, I made some, I could, I might've through a couple of different choices. Maybe I could have been a little bit more where you are, but, um, Thank you so much for doing this with me today. It's been great. You know, I think our, you know, it's the commonalities that we've had a little bit. It's our, our obvious love for technology, but you know, you've uh, obviously accomplished tremendous amount. I didn't even ask you about OKRs, which I'm not going to. Um, I'll I'll put a link in my uh, in my. You're obviously done a lot of work there too, but this has been tremendous. I could spend literally hours slash days doing this with you, but Rick, thank you so much uh, for your time. Tom, what a pleasure. It's uh, amazing how how parallel our paths have been for as long as they've been. Uh, <laughs> I'm thrilled they finally intersected. Except for the part where I was able to reach millions of users and work with Product Manager <laughs> at Google. Other than that, they've been exactly the same. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Thank you, Tom.